Good morning, friends. My name's Craig, uh, with my wife Libby and our youngest uh, Ruby. Uh, we're members of Five O'Clock Church, and it's my great privilege to be working uh, through John's Gospel with you guys this morning. Chapter 19, keep your Bibles open. We'll get there in just a sec. Now, history is made up of a succession of billions of little moments and little decisions. Most of them are completely unremarkable. For example, this morning I uh, got up around six and I chose to feed the cat first and then the dog. Nobody except the dog noticed and he quickly got over it. But every now and then there are pivotal moments, pivotal decisions that change the course of history. One writer calls them frozen moments. And there are two frozen moments in our passage tonight. But let me illustrate what I mean by a frozen moment and share the story that this writer gives. In the late 1880s in North America, Buffalo Bill Cody's Wild West show was bringing the crowds in like nobody's business. He was touring America with exhibitions of horsemanship and um, gun-toting amazement. One of the more popular acts was Phoebe Moses, known better as Annie Oakley, who was quite the markswoman. She would take her gun and she could shoot the cork out of a bottle without breaking the glass. She could shoot the flame off a candle. And the crescendo, the climax of her routine was to call a volunteer from the audience. A man would come forward. She'd give him a cigarette, light it. She'd go to the other side of the room, take aim and shoot the ash off the end of the cigarette. The trick was, every time she called for a volunteer, her husband Frank in the audience would step forward. Anyway, (laughs) Buffalo Bill realised that uh, this was going pretty well, took the show to Europe, and they travelled Europe. The story goes that... Uh, Buffalo Bill and and Phoebe and Frank, one night after the show, realised they were making quite a bit of coin, so they went out and celebrated. They went pretty hard. They backed up the next night for the show and uh, Annie Oakley did her routine. She called for volunteers. Frank, a little bit under the weather, was a bit slow to put his hand up. In that gap, a loud-mouthed German stood up and strode to the front. Crown Prince Wilhelm got out a cigarette and lit it. You can imagine what's going through Annie's mind. She (laughs) takes aim. You can imagine the the sweat pouring down her face, every little tremor. Now the stakes are much higher. She shoots and the ash flings off Crown Prince Wilhelm's cigarette and he sits down. Crown Prince Wilhelm went on to become Kaiser Wilhelm, who led Germany into the First World War. How history might have been changed in that moment. <laughs> if a slight tremor in her hand, there, there might not have been a World War I. 20 million lives possibly saved. Hitler would not have emerged from the ashes of a defeated Germany. Lenin wouldn't have, been, wouldn't have overthrown a demoralised Russian government. Possibly no World War II either. One shot could have changed the future for millions and billions of people. That is a frozen moment. 
And there are two frozen moments in our passage. Two decisions that change the course of history. We're working our way through John's Gospel here at St Andrews and we're up to chapter 19 out of 22. In the movies, the script writer, writer might briefly cover the central character's backstory, you know, covering a, a lifetime in three or four minutes before slowing down and spending 90 minutes on just one dinner party, one night, one key period of time. That's what John has done for us in his gospel account of the life of Jesus. He began in uh, his opening verses covering 13.8 billion years, give or take, in just three sentences. The first sentence of John's gospel, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He then quickly moved to introduce Jesus as the word, as God incarnate. Over the first four chapters, we're given an unchallenged presentation of Jesus. We're invited to just hop on board the Jesus train without any questions. But then in chapter 5 through 12, doubts and challenges, mainly from the Jewish establishment, arise. There's questioning and suspicion about Jesus bubbling to the surface. Questions about his identity and his motives. Who is Jesus and what did he come to do? These questions are forced on us as John moves us from being uncritical passengers on the Jesus train to asking questions about this man. Incidentally, uh, when I was uh, here a couple of weeks ago, when I was asked to share briefly about the work of my organisation, YouthWorks, I mentioned in passing that we as youth works are seeking to partner with you know, Lauren and Grant and Kath and Mel and other youth leaders across Sydney to try to turn back the dial on the adolescent years which have become in the West a spiritual kill zone with up to 40% of young people in church giving up on Jesus by the time they hit 30. And a number of you engaged me on this afterwards and asked what can be done. Well, not only do we know all that, that all things being equal, some 40% of our young people will give up on Jesus. We also know that one of the three key uh, things that a family, a church family, can do to give our young people a sticky faith, a faith in Christ that sticks through all the seasons of life, is to give young people permission to question the gospel permission to doubt and wrestle with whether the Christian faith is true or not. Because, and let, let's be honest, we're all grown adults here, this, this is quite outrageous, isn't it? That God walked the earth, he claimed to offer eternal life to everyone, healed the sick, raised the dead, said he would die in our place for our sins, take our eternal punishment on himself and then rise from the dead after three days to prove all this is true. It is quite outrageous, isn't it? And we need to give our young people permission to doubt and shake the tree of our faith so they can find out for themselves and know for sure that it is true, that it works and that it changes lives, even their young lives, for good forever. And in chapters 5 through 12, John gives voice to doubts and challenges over Jesus, his identity his mission, his relevance. 
And through these challenges to Jesus, we see they're not without good reason. So, for example, in, in chapters 5 and 9, and we, we covered these uh, a couple of months ago in church, we see Jesus healing two men. Uh, the first man had been lame for 38 years, and the second had been blind since birth. And both of them, Jesus healed on the Sabbath. And that's what so ticked off the religious leaders and amped up the questions and the conflict around and opposition to Jesus. And note, both these healings happened on a Sabbath. And these two men had been in need of healing for 38 years and for a lifetime respectively. Another 24 hours, Jesus, wasn't going to break the bank. You could have like come across them, gone and, sell, gone and got yourself a nice Airbnb for the night, come back after the Sabbath and heal them, no worries. But no, Jesus didn't wait. He niggled. He deliberately took the fight up to his opponents. He was aggressive, provocative and in your face. This is not Jesus meek and mild. The Jesus of history is not the Jesus Peter Fitzsimons wrote about in yesterday's Herald. Jesus engineered these escalating controversies knowing full well where they would lead. And in these chapters that span three years, we also see Jesus courageous and steadfast under fire. And then time slows down even further. In chapters 13 to 17, we're invited to return to our initial state of naivety and go all in on Jesus. Jesus the niggler is the, is the gathering and sending Christ. Remember Stu's sermon a couple of weeks ago on Jesus' prayer for all Christians? Like a rocket ship, Jesus launches his followers into the world on a trajectory to live and love like him. And now we are brought to the last hours of Jesus' life. And make no mistake, this is a carefully crafted account of history. Now, in order to make sense of chapter 19, and we're, we're finally there, sports fans, in order to make sense of chapter 19 and Jesus being on trial for his life before Pontius Pilate, we've just got to lean back a bit into chapter 18. And it's interesting, there's no big trial scene in John's Gospel like there is in the other three, because in John's Gospel, Jesus has been on trial since chapter 5. And we saw last week, with Tom's help, that Jesus is the Good Shepherd. When he was arrested, he ensured that none of his, his followers were caught up but could go free, and Jesus essentially arrests himself. So chapter 18, verse 4. Who is it you want? Jesus asked the soldiers that night in the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. I am he. Let me show you what happens at the end of chapter 18 as Jesus is brought to Pilate, the local Roman governor, because there are seven scenes that draw our attention to one event. They are like bookends framing a key text on the shelf. The beginning of chapter 19 has that famous event. Let me read it to you again. Then Pilate took Jesus and had him flogged. The soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head. They clothed him in a purple robe and went up to him again and again saying, Hail the King of the Jews! And they struck him in the face. 
A few verses earlier, chapter 18, verse 29, don't know if you can see it there, we read that Pilate came out to see the Jewish leaders with their captive. So verse 29, Pilate came out to them. In verse 33, Pilate then went back inside the palace. In verse 38, he went out again to the Jews. We we jump over this central passage down to verse 4. Once more, Pilate came out and said to the Jews, uh, then verse 9, he went back inside the palace. Verse 13, he then brought Jesus out. It's like a pinball game with Jesus, the pawn, stuck in the middle. Out, in, out, out, in, out. With that famous mock coronation scene in the middle. God, through John, has bookended this scene to make sure that we don't miss it. Here we see Jesus as king, not just of the Jews, but king of the cosmos. But if Jesus really is the king of the cosmos, and remember, that's how he was set up for us in chapter 1, verse 1, and we've seen him talk the talk of someone who sees himself as God Almighty and walk the walk with those signs, those miracles, those intentional, powerful, incontrovertible proofs of his identity as king of the cosmos. But the coronation of this king is not with a crown of gold, is it? It's with a crown of thorns. And this king's army of soldiers don't stand and salute. They punch and they spit, and they mock. This king of the cosmos has not come in power, but in weakness. And if you follow this king, you need to know that joining in his kingdom means setting aside your rights and counting others better than yourself. How do you exercise your power and authority? Like Jesus who came in weakness of flesh and as a servant? Or do you like it when others do your bidding because you've got the money, you've got the power, you've got the prestige, the influence? You're here in Roseville. You're here in Sydney on the North Shore. You've got it all, baby. You've got nothing compared to the king of the cosmos. But he set aside all he had to come in weakness for you, for me. Now sometimes physical affliction and circumstances, they force weakness upon us. But is it our default mindset that that we wield our power, not for ourselves, but for the benefit of others? Willingly choosing to serve the good of another before looking to your own needs and wants? Because that's what he's done for you, which we see so clearly in this mock coronation scene. Leaning back into chapter 18 for a moment, we see Pilate trying to extricate himself from this political mess. It dawns on him that each Passover, the Jewish festival, each year when they remember how every faithful Jewish family... Uh, when they were in Egypt, sacrificed a lamb and painted the lamb's blood over their front doorway and God's angel of death passed over them that was the catalyst for them to be set free from Egyptian slavery. And to mark this remembrance of slaves being set free, Pilate would, every Passover, release a prisoner to the Jewish crowds. So verse 38, with this he went out again to the Jews and said, 
I find no basis for a charge against him, speaking of Jesus. Uh, But it's your custom for me to release to you one prisoner at the time of the Passover. Do you want me to release the king of the Jews? They shouted back, no, not him, give us Barabbas. Now Barabbas had taken part in a rebellion. How ironic. An insurrectionist. One who sought to overthrow the king, the Caesar, who would have been on death row awaiting crucifixion, goes free. While Jesus, the innocent one, will be condemned in his place. And there's more. There's something else about Barabbas. He was a Jew. And his name means son of the father. Bar means son, Abba, father. Barabbas, son of the father. So we've got two blokes in front of Pilate. Barabbas, a violent criminal and murderer. And Jesus, completely innocent. And Pontius Pilate looked at these two men. Barabbas, son of a father, guilty as sin. Jesus, son of God the Father, completely innocent. And so we come to our first frozen moment. Pontius Pilate, the first century Roman governor of Judea, had one shot, one decision in one frozen moment. The crowd is baying for the release of Barabbas. Pilate allows Jesus to be subjected to the humiliation of a mock coronation, then tries again to have Jesus set free. Uh, Jesus brought out to the crowd, verse 5, wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, and Pilate said to them, Here is the man. As soon as the chief priests and their officials saw him, they shouted, Crucify! Crucify! Pilate protests Jesus' innocence and tells the Jewish leaders to crucify him. But they come back by citing Leviticus 24 verse 16 from their law that requires anyone who blasphemes God's name to be put to death. And they say, verse 7, we have a law and according to that he must die because he claimed to be the son of God. Now this is blasphemy because to be a son, well, you share your father's DNA And Jesus' claim to be the Son of God meant he claimed to be of the same stuff, the same perfect, eternal, sovereign nature as God himself. I remember as an 18-year-old undergraduate accountant trying to stand up for Jesus in my workplace. And uh, one of my co-workers, she she was a few years older than me, she said, "Where where did Jesus ever claim to be God? Show me that and I'll believe That sound you heard back in 1988 in the CBD was my middle stump, cartwheeling back toward the wicketkeeper. Because I had nothing. I should have taken her to John chapter 19 verse 7. Or better yet, chapter 10 verse 33, when the Jewish leaders said they were wanting to stone Jesus to death, quote, because you, a mere man, claim to be God. Pilate keeps trying to set Jesus free. Verse 12, but the Jews kept shouting, if you let this man go, you are no friend of Caesar. Archaeologists think they've they've found a ring that belonged to Pontius Pilate because of the inscription on it. And on it, in in Latin, was the phrase, around the 
the insignia, the head of the, the emperor, was the Latin friend of Caesar. You can imagine Pilate sitting there, twisting his, his ring as he's trying to get himself out of this jam. And the Jewish religious leaders, they, they see he's playing with this friend of Caesar ring. If you let this man go, you are no friend of Caesar. You'll lose your job. You'll lose everything. Anyone who claims to be a king opposes Caesar. Here is your king, Pilate said to the Jews. But they shouted, take him away, take him away, crucify him. Shall I crucify your king, Pilate asked? We have no king but Caesar. Finally, Pilate handed him over to them to be crucified. Pilate could have had Jesus brought back inside the palace and spirited away out a back door, yeah? He then could have rounded up the religious leaders in the square and had them flogged. Pilate had one choice, one decision, one shot, one moment. How different would the last 2,000 years of human history have been if Jesus had not been crucified on the Passover, just as he predicted Just as the Old Testament foretold, if not a bone in his body was broken and a spear not shoved into his side and the blood flowed out, if he had not died in my place for my sins, if he had not risen from the grave on the third day, how different would the world now be? Such is Jesus' sovereignty over all things. He's able to bring things to pass without compromising the moral culpability of the human actors who bring those things about. In verse 10, he told, Pilate told Jesus, don't you realise I have the power to either free you or crucify you? Well, you'd have no power over me if it weren't given to you from above. Therefore, the one who handed me over to you is guilty of a greater sin. One moment, one decision. And we know the decision Pilate made. It's been immortalised in our creed. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died and was buried. Now, I love sport. I love my rugby league. And I love state of origin. I remember a few years ago, Phil Gould, the Channel 9 commentator, was standing under the goalposts at one end, moments before the teams ran out for conflict, and the cameraman circled around him, giving us a great view of 80,000 screaming fans. And Gould said, Origin is a time for leaders to stand up and be counted. He said, quote, Origin is one moment that echoes into eternity. Two things. Number one, I think he stole that line from Russell Crowe and Gladiator. And number two, it's complete bollocks. There's only one decision that will echo into eternity. And that is your response to the man who claimed to be the king of the universe. Which means he claims to be your king. Whose life was predicted centuries in advance by the Old Testament, who did the things that only God should be able to do, who said he would die to deal with all the wrong we have done. And Pontius Pilate came face to face with this king, with Jesus Christ, 
and dismissed him. He had his one shot at glory and he missed. Now, Jesus Christ is the most impressive person you could ever meet. He is, in fact, the perfect gentleman. He won't force himself on you. He will give you exactly what you ask for. So if you want arm's distance, you know, a very respectable North Shore arm's distance relationship with Jesus, he'll give you arm's length forever. If you want a relationship with him, a friendship with him, he'll give that to you forever. And that brings us, doesn't it, to the second frozen moment in our passage. On the face of things, Jesus is the one who's been on trial, but ever since opposition to him first appeared back in chapter 5, Jesus continually kept on turning the tables on his inquisitors and also on us readers to the point where it's really you and me who are on trial. What will we do? Will we go down in history alongside Pontius Pilate, who recognised there's something extraordinary about this man, Jesus, but when push came to shove, you gave in to the crowds and pushed him away. Maybe you'll be numbered with the religious leaders who want nothing more than the complete removal, nothing less than the complete removal of Jesus from your life. Or will you go all in on Jesus, the cosmic king who has become your saviour and invites you to know him as your friend and your king? If you do, he calls on you to follow him as a servant, as one who puts the gold to one side and willingly takes on thorns, who chooses to serve rather than be served. You've got one shot in this frozen moment. And I reckon there are three options. You can say, no, not interested. You could say, yes, I'm all in on Jesus. Or you could say, yeah, this is big, I need some thinking time, I need more evidence. Well, if that's you, our next Life of Jesus course starting next month is perfect for you. But if you've already said, yeah, I'm all in on Jesus, will you resolve in this frozen moment to follow him as your king, to commit to expending your life in service of him and in love of your neighbour? Not for your glory, but for the glory of the King of the cosmos who died and rose and is coming back for you. Amen.